This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au My name is Matt, I'm the lead pastor here at Anchor, part of the Erskineville Gospel Community and it is good to be here. I kind of feel like we've been Gypsy Church for the last uh, couple of weeks. This is the third venue we've been in in the last four weeks and so we've been bouncing around here and there and uh, it feels we're a bit like a... um, vagrants, vagabonds and homeless church, but um, something about it that I like. I don't know about you guys. I know it would be much easier for the bump in, bump out teams to be an established church and have a building that was ours, but there's something about this process that forces us to roll with the changes, that reminds us that we're actually a church plant and that we want to be a church planting church. And I think this um, kind of change keeps us fresh a bit, so I don't, maybe, maybe I'm just a bit wild like that, but there's something about this that I like, and I realize I didn't bump in this morning. So let's, uh, let's just thank the team that bumped in this morning, all of our crew. Um, the other announcement I just wanted to add, um, that this week's been um, a sad week for a number of our staff, so um, Hope Miles lost her grandpa this week, and um, Alnado and Catherine also lost uh, Catherine's grandfather this week as well. So um, the funeral for Catherine's grandfather was, it's already um, gone on Wednesday this week or Thursday this week and Hope's grandfather's funeral is on Tuesday coming. So if you could um, please pray for our staff and their families. Uh, Anata's actually flown out to New York. Um, he, I don't even think he made it to the funeral, sadly, but Catherine's alone with three kids. So please, please pray for Hope and her family, for those of you who know um, the extended Miles family and for the Santiago's and their family as well as they, they grieve this week. Um, they, would, they would greatly appreciate that. So let me pray for us now. Um, pray that God would prepare our hearts to hear what he has to say to us through his word this morning. Will you join me as I pray? God, we thank you that you are a God of gracious comfort. We pray now for those in our family who are grieving, particularly for the Santiago family and the Miles family. We want to bring them before you, God, and pray that you would be near. We thank you that you are the God of all comfort. We pray that you would give them the room and space they need to grieve well, to celebrate the lives that were, to reflect on the, the memories that they've had. God, we pray um, that you would remind them of your presence, that you would remind them that you are close, and that despite pain and hurt and suffering, that you're still good and that you're still in control, and that you're still for us, and that you love us. And God, we pray, even this morning, as we look at this part of your word, as opposition comes, we're reminded that you're still in control, God, that you're still good. And so, Father, please speak to us this morning. We come expectant. We want to hear you speak to us. And so, God, wherever we find ourselves this morning, God, would you please work? Would you please speak? Would you please strengthen weak, feeble knees? Would you lift up the downtrodden? Will you spur on those who are running? We know that this is a work of your spirit, so we pray that you would do it for your glory. And all of those who agreed said, amen, amen. It was uh, really cool to have Marty McFly emceeing this morning in his red trackies. Trackies, nice one. It It was really good. I like that. 
I was um, leaving for work on Friday morning um, and uh, saying goodbye to the kids. And Judah said to me, um, said to me, oh, Daddy, I'll pray for you as you go to work today. And I mean, as a dad, as a Christian dad, you're like, oh, it's the best thing I've ever heard in the world. And, and I said to him, well, buddy, would you pray that I could write a good sermon today? It's Friday and I've not written anything, so pray I can write a good sermon today. And he said to me, Daddy, can you write a sermon about lions and bears? I was like, mm, no, not this week. But um, there's no lions and bears this week. But what we are doing is we're in part three of this uh, three-part sermon that has come over three weeks. And so if you weren't with us two weeks ago, you would have missed the start of this story. So the start of the story is Peter and John go to the temple to pray at the time of prayer. And as they're walking into the beautiful gate of the temple, they see a lame man who is begging, who asks them for money. And Peter heals the guy, lifts him up. He walks into the temple, praising God, leaping and walking and jumping and dancing. And a crowd comes. And when Peter has opportunity, he... Preaches. That's it. So he preaches a sermon. The Sadducees, the Jewish ruling council, get very upset with this sermon that's preached because they're preaching the resurrection of Jesus. And so they arrest Peter and John. They put them in jail overnight. The next morning, they drag them before the Sanhedrin, the same 71 men that falsely tried and condemned Jesus to death. And they begin to question them. In what power, what authority, what name did you do this? And when Peter has opportunity, he... Preaches, that's it. He preaches boldly that there is no other name other than the name of Jesus by which people could be saved. They kick them out of the Sanhedrin. They confer together. They decide that they just need to threaten them and tell these men to be silent. And so they do. And Peter says, Will you judge whether it's right for us to obey you rather than God? And they threaten them again and they send them home. And here we arrive at the end of chapter 4 as Peter and John are released from prison, no doubt going back to their church family who have been praying for them. And so chapter 4, verse 1, we have this moment of opposition that begins to threaten this new movement that has begun. This fragile church that has only just started is under scrutiny. There is a gag order. There are threats of persecution, maybe even threats of punishment, physical punishment and death. And the, que the question that must be running through their minds is, what is happening? Is God, are you still in control in this moment? Are you still in control? Maybe this opposition is a signal to the church that they ought to just retreat and go back to the comfort of Christian community and let their lives do the talking rather than having to stand out in the public square and in the temple courts proclaiming the risen Jesus. Maybe... God has lost control. I'm sure you've all been there. You've asked that. You've stepped out in faith. You've, you've done something in obedience to God and it's smooth sailing. And then you hit the wall. And you're like, God, what are you doing? God, are you still in control? That is exactly where the church find, finds themselves in this moment. And today we're going to see how God is in control despite opposition that comes towards the church. But the principles that we see this church walking through, this opposition, are the same principles that you might walk through if you're going through a season of suffering or pain or loss or grief. That question that arises in our hearts, God, are you still in control? And the answer I want you to see this morning is yes, 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 100%. Yes, God is still in control. 
He is completely and utterly in control. And if he's in control, that means we can both trust him and pray to him. We can trust him and pray to him. Trust and prayer are like the bunk beds of the Christian life that go together. They cannot be separated. Prayer and trust together. What I want you to see this morning is that the sovereignty of God, his control of all things is essential to the mission of God. God's sovereignty is essential to the mission and it is precisely because he is in control that we can pray, that we can trust. But before we get there, I want you to notice something about this Christian community. In this moment, as Peter and John return from this this court hearing that they've just had from this trial, these threats, the church has a prayer reflex. That's a a phrase I've borrowed from Amy Pratt. And she's been encouraging our prayer team to be praying for you during our Sunday gathering. And after the service, she's been encouraging our team to have a prayer reflex. So there is just this automatic impulse in us that wants to pray. And that's exactly what they do. Prayer ought not to be peculiar for us. It's an impulse. It's a reflex. And so as they're released from prison, either Peter and John join the prayer meeting that's already existed or they call a new one and they begin to pray. Have a look at verse 23. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who do they pray to? How do they address their prayer? Sovereign Lord, God of unmatched authority, God of unequaled power, God of unchallenged control, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord. You know, it says a lot about your theology, your understanding of God, how you pray or how you start your prayers. And when we pray, Father God, it says a lot of what we believe about who God is. He is our Father. Or as we begin the Lord's Prayer, our Father who is in heaven. That says a lot about who we believe God to be. And this church begins their prayer by saying, Sovereign Lord, when we pray, we are not praying to someone who is not only present, a God who is present, a God who not only knows all things, but a God who is all-powerful. He is sovereign Lord. And He created all things, heaven and earth and the sea and everything that fills every single one of those spheres. God has created all of it. He is powerful. And so as they open this prayer, they're reminding themselves of just who it is they pray to. We pray to the God who is in control. Not to some mute idol or some impersonal force, but the all-powerful God of the universe. And this is the extent and um, the the magnitude of his control and purpose over all things. Come back to the start of that prayer with me at verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's an important little side note on your doctrine of Scripture, is it not? 
That even though David spoke these words or penned these words in Psalm 2, it was the Holy Spirit who inspired them. You see, we believe about our scriptures that there are two authors. There's a human author, but behind that human author is the Holy Spirit who inspires these words. And so as they remind themselves of scripture, what they're reminding themselves of is not just David's words, but God's very words himself. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So in their prayer, there's another throwback here to Psalm chapter 2. As David or the psalmist there, God's anointed, speaks of the opposition that has come against him. And then it goes on to speak of his vindication and his judgment and his rule that he would stand victorious. And they ask the question that the psalm proposes, why do the nations rage in vain? It is fut- this opposition to your anointed God is futile. It's empty because your anointed always wins. And they take this prayer and they make a parallel, this psalm rather, and they make a parallel with the life of Jesus. That he is God's anointed. Peter's already said that in multiple sermons. That Jesus is God's anointed and that the people have opposed him. Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and interestingly, the Jews themselves have opposed and come against Jesus. But just as the opposition to David, God's anointed in Psalm 2, is futile, so it is to Jesus. It is futile. God is sovereign. He is in control. His plans will not be frustrated. Jesus is king. He's won. He will return. Just like the the anointed in Psalm 2, he will rule the nations. He will judge with truth and righteousness. Jesus is king. He is one. He is God's anointed. And there is no point living in opposition to him. And so if you're here this morning and you you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, maybe you're living in opposition to him. Maybe you come from a worldview of, um, of atheism that says there is no God and you have set yourself up in opposition to God. I want to say it's futile. Jesus wins. And I want to beg you today to join the winning team. Philippians 2. Paul traces the descent and ascent of Jesus. And he says at the end of that, as Christ is raised up and given the name above every name, that every knee will bow at King Jesus, that every tongue will confess that he is Lord, willingly or unwillingly, we will all see Jesus reigning, ruling, the victorious anointed King of God. And so I invite you, some of you here today who have identified as opposed to this message, to consider the story and testimony of the Apostle Paul himself. 
A man who made it his personal ambition and life mission to destroy the church. With the authority and a vendetta to go out and to kill Christians who would speak in the name of Jesus as we will see in a few weeks' time in Acts chapter 9, has a powerful encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and has his life miraculously and radically transformed from opposing Jesus to following Jesus. He is king. He is victorious. He wins. Join him. I guess it's a bit like, actually it's not like this at all, but I'm going to stretch the illustration as far as I can get it. It's a bit like being a Queensland supporter this year round, is it not? I mean, New South Wales are going to win this year. They're going to win. Amen, Scotty. I just bought a new Blues jersey because we're going to the game next week, and I, just, I wanted to be, so I got a jersey. And, but uh, look, hey, if you're a Queensland supporter today, I want to invite you to repent of your opposition, your, your wickedness, and just come and join the winning team. Because New South Wales is going to win this year. It's inevitable we're going to win because we've got Jared Hayne and he's back. And um, anyway. But I guess the question naturally, naturally arises in those moments of opposition. Is God still in control? Can we naturally assume that because of the presence of suffering or pain or opposition that that these circumstances are out of God's hands, that he can't really do anything about them. And the church needs to know that it's often in the very middle of the opposition, in the midst of the pain, in the presence of suffering, that God demonstrates his love and his power and his control over all things. And there is no better picture of that than what happened at the cross. There is no better picture of God's plan unfolding, the plan that he had determined before the foundation of the earth to begin, that despite the opposition, despite the suffering, despite the pain, he's at work, he's loving, he's good, he's in control. And if God is in control, that means you and I don't need to be. And that means we can trust him. That means we can trust him. God has a plan. He's told this church what the plan is. Luke chapter 24, verse 44, he says that the scriptures have foretold that Jesus will die and rise again. And just as true, the scriptures had foretold that the good news of Jesus must go to the ends of the earth. And then we get to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and he says to the apostles, you will be my witnesses. Not you might not I hope, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. God has a plan. He's got a plan that he's working out. And this opposition is not going to stop it because he's in control. He's in control and that means we can trust him. But the fact that God is in control also means that we can pray to him. The fact that he is sovereign over all things that means that we can pray to God, but you might be sitting there thinking, well, hang on a second. If God is entirely sovereign, if He is in control of all things, if He has a plan that He is predetermined, then surely prayer is pointless. I mean, what's the point in praying if God's already going to do it anyway? But I want to suggest to you this morning that prayer rests on the foundation that God is sovereign. 
that God, if, if he is not, there is no point in praying. And so let me speak to that objection for a second. Because what we see here with the early church and with the apostles is that they saw no contradiction between the sovereignty of God and a prayer. They pray, sovereign Lord, God of, who has created heaven and earth and sea. The God who has been in control when opposition comes to your anointed one. Sovereign. They see no contradiction there to bring their prayer requests before a God who is in complete control. And so I think part of the problem, four answers to that objection. The first is that part of the problem is a narrow definition of what prayer is. You see, if we think that prayer is simply just petition, requests, but we've made our definition of prayer too narrow because prayer is praise and thanksgiving and adoration and confession and sometimes lament. And the sovereignty of God does not underwrite any of those things. In fact, it magnifies all of them. If God is in control, if he's entirely in control and sovereign, then he is worthy of more of my praise. He is worthy of more of my adoration and dependence and trust. And so prayer is bigger than just simply asking God for things. That's the first answer. The second is, it is precisely because God is sovereign that we can pray. In fact, none of you would pray if you didn't believe that he was. What would be the point of praying to a God that you believe was impotent and unable to do anything? We just wouldn't pray. Everyone who prays, everyone who prays believes that God is in control, that he is able to act, that he is able to change circumstance. Yes, the very foundation of our prayers rests on the fact that God is in control of all things. Thirdly, prayer is more than just petition. It's communication and it's relationship. See, God loves it when his people pray. And even if he knows what's going to come off my lips... He still commands me and invites me and delights in my prayers. You know, coming up in January next year, Tash and I will be married 10 years. 10 years, pretty good. And we've got to the point where we kind of know each other pretty well after 10 years. And, you know, a couple of years dating before that. We, we know each other quite well. And there will be times when I know exactly what Tash is going to say. And times where she knows exactly what I'm going to say. And that doesn't diminish the delight it is to hear them say it and to hear them express their heart and to hear their thoughts, even though I know what's coming. And if that's true of human relationships, how much more of relationship with God? He loves it when we communicate with Him. He delights in our prayers. That's why He not only commands it, but He invites it. Prayer is an expression of our dependence on Him that He is our Father, that He knows our needs, and that we need Him. And as we depend on Him in prayer, it magnifies His glory and demonstrates that He is worthy and sufficient. And so prayer is about communication and relationship. And finally, God uses our prayers. See, our prayers are not an interruption to God's purposes and plans. They're an instrument in them. Our prayers are used by God to achieve his purposes. In fact, this prayer that they pray is God's plan and purpose that this church would pray it, that he would answer it, that he would be glorified. 
Our prayers are not an interruption to the plan and purposes of God. They are the instruments for God achieving his purposes and his plans as he responds to the prayers of his people. And so we cannot pray. You will not pray if you do not believe that God is all-powerful, in control, and has a good plan. God is sovereign. He is Lord. That means we can trust him. And it means we can pray to him. Now, you notice something about this prayer. Up until this point, they've not requested anything. They've not asked anything of God. It's just been praise and declaration of his character and his worth. And then you get to the petitions. In verse 29, this is what they ask. And that's a good model of prayer for us. To not just come to God with our shopping list, but to come not just reminding ourselves, but declaring back to him who he is, sovereign Lord. In verse 29, we get to their petitions. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through, your, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You notice here, there's not a request for the persecution to stop. Doesn't that blow you away? That's how I would be praying, like, God, smite them in the name of Jesus. Destroy, get rid of this persecution, whatever. I don't want to go through this. They don't pray that. Look upon their threats, Lord. Look upon their threats. They remember, the church remembers what Jesus said in John 15, 20. He said this, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me, says Jesus. They will persecute you also. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And the church, as they walk through this moment, realize, yes, this is the cost of what it looks like to follow Jesus. We are not greater than him. He is our master. If they persecuted him, they will persecute us as well. God still has a plan. He still has a purpose. God, would you look upon their threats? Would you take notice of them? And instead of... Instead of asking him to take them away, they ask for two other things that are extraordinary. The first is they ask for boldness to continue to speak the word of God. And secondly, they ask for God to to pour out his spirit and to work powerfully in miracles and healings and wonders and signs. In effect, what they're saying is, God, while you do your thing, all of the miraculous stuff, would you help us do our thing And that is speak the gospel. Now I say speak the gospel. Because if I was to say preach the gospel, and I know that's been a bit of a running joke for us. When we have opportunity, we preach. But I want to say speak the gospel. Because sometimes I think we answer the question, well, who preaches here at Anchor Church? And you might say, well, Matt and Alnado and the staff. But the, the real answer to that question, who preaches here at Anchor Church is you. You preach. You speak the gospel. And so this prayer is not that just Peter and John would continue to speak the good news, that the whole church would continue to speak the word of God, would continue to speak the gospel. I want to ask you this question. I want you to imagine that tomorrow, front page of the Sydney Morning Herald, there's an article that says that there has been a ban slapped on proselytizing in our city. Gladys, our premier, she rolls it out. 
It's like no more proselytizing in our city. It doesn't matter what faith you are. You cannot seek to try and convert someone to your faith. What would you do? In that moment, honestly, honestly, what would you do? Wouldn't most of us like rush to GC in the weekends? What do we do? We need to pray. God, please change the law. No, no. Look at what this church does. They gather together, they pray, and they ask for boldness to continue to do the very thing that got them in trouble and for God to work. Would we do that, church? Would we say, God, fill us with boldness that we would speak the name of Jesus irrespective of what people would say? But you know, the reality is that a vast majority of the Christian population that lives outside of Western culture, that's their normal. That's their everyday. People who are living under communist regimes. People who are living in countries that are closed to the gospel, where there are bans on churches gathering, where this could not happen without the police bursting through the doors, arresting me and half of you. That's the reality for the majority of people who follow Jesus. And isn't it interesting? I don't, I don't know if this is a reflection on us, but isn't it interesting that those who face the most persecution are often those who are most bold? And those who have the most freedom often aren't. What would you do? What do we do given all of the freedoms that we do have? Well, the reality is we do the exact same thing. We ask for boldness. And then this happens. At the end of their prayer, when the church prays, verse 31, this happens. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Man, I'd love to see prayers answered that quickly, wouldn't you? You pray it, instant answer to prayer. That would be great. You're like asleep this morning. No one wants that. Does anyone want a quick answer to prayer this morning here. Good. Three of you want a quick answer to prayer. You know what that tells me? The rest of you aren't praying. Because if you're praying, you want, quick an- you want God to answer your prayers. And this is a quick answer, right? So much so that the building that they're meeting in is shaken. Now, as far as I'm aware, that's the only time that happens in the Scriptures. And often, when there is shaking of the firmament, it's a sign of God's judgment. But here... This is a sign, a symbol, a witness that God has heard, that the Spirit has been poured out, that their prayers have been answered. I kind of, I kind of want to experience what that would have been like. Imagine being in the room that day as that prayer meeting took place. And as whoever was praying said, Amen, and all of a sudden the room shook. I want us to kind of enter into that experience a little bit. So we're going to do something interactive I'm going to pray that prayer, and at the end of it, I want you all to stamp your feet on the floor, all right? So I'm going to pray that prayer. I'm going to say amen, and then you all stamp your feet. You got it? Is anyone unclear about what's happening right now? Good. All right, so let me pray the prayer that whoever was praying in that prayer meeting prayed, and then you stamp your feet when I say amen. You ready? And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Amen. Oh, yes. Now, look, here's the deal. I don't think we should expect that every time we pray that the room's going to shake. But, um, 
But it is pretty cool. So let's, let's not expect that. But here's what I think we should expect. I think that we should expect when we pray like that, when we pray for boldness, when we pray in line with God's will. See, God has told his people what he wants. Be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. When we pray in line with God's will, I think we ought to expect that he will answer and fill us with his spirit, with boldness to do the very thing he wants us to do. God immediately answers this request for boldness and they speak the word boldly. Now, what is the word that they speak here? Well, what do they do? They do exactly the same thing that Peter and John did as they boldly stood before the Sanhedrin and declared the word that it is in the name of Jesus, the risen Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given to us by which we must be saved other than Jesus. And they keep talking about Jesus and preaching Jesus and talking about the resurrection and talking about the cross and talking about his ascension and talking about the fact that he is king. And they preach Jesus so much so that we get to Acts chapter 5, verse 28, and the apostles are again hold in front of the Sanhedrin, and they, they accuse them of filling the city with the preaching of Jesus. That's the answer to this prayer, that they boldly continue to speak of Jesus. Now, boldness here is um, it's not to be mistaken for macho bravery, for speaking at people rather than communicating to people. right? That doesn't take much boldness. In fact, I would suggest it doesn't take much boldness to put a milk crate on George Street and yell at people. It doesn't take much boldness to be insensitive. But it takes boldness to speak of Jesus in a winsome way. Boldness does not mean that you will never feel fear. Right, that you will never be afraid as you go to the office on Monday morning. Boldness doesn't mean that you're going to walk in, chest puffed, declaring Jesus. No. Boldness means a Holy Spirit-empowered realization that something is more important than the fear that you currently experience, namely the honor and fame of Jesus. That's what boldness is. It's not bravado. It's not macho. It's not... It's a realization that there is something more important than the fear that I experience in my heart, that Jesus would be lifted up. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, what we really need is not more training in evangelism, not more opportunities, but more boldness. Is it not true? I mean, I, I know what to say. God's putting lots of opportunities in front of me, but sometimes I'm just too scared to take them. And I want to say that I, I can identify with you. I mean, look, this, it's easy to stand on this stage in the safety of Christian community in church and speak about Jesus. It's another thing on Monday morning to do that, right? I identify with those of you who fear what it looks like to speak Jesus outside of the safety of the walls of Christian community. I need boldness just as much as you need boldness. A number of years ago, the youth ministry for 17 years before planting Anchor Church, and a number of years ago, we surveyed our youth ministry, about 120 kids. We surveyed them all about what are the things that prevent them from speaking of Jesus to their friends, and here were some of their answers. 34% of them said they feared rejection. 28% of them said they were lazy, at least they were honest. 
17% said they were scared of the questions that they might get if they spoke of Jesus. 21% said they just didn't know how. The result is that over 50% of our youth ministry was scared, was motivated by fear, operating from fear. And I don't think we're any different from the teenagers out at MBM Youth at Rudy Hill. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all experience that, don't we? And so my challenge to us, church, is to pray a dangerous prayer, like Brian mentioned this morning, that we would pray a dangerous prayer. A dangerous prayer, because if you pray a prayer like this, God, fill me with boldness that I would continue to speak, and God answers that prayer. Do you know what the answer is? You need to speak. That's a dangerous prayer, because we then, we then need to be the answer to that prayer. I wonder if you've ever prayed for boldness. I mean, look, look, we've prayed for all sorts of things, haven't we? We've prayed for sickness. We've prayed for friends and family who don't know Jesus. We've prayed for, I mean, just a few weeks ago, we, we spent time praying across our city. Rowan's written a really helpful blog post on that. You can go to our website and read about it. But we prayed for our media and our economy and for um, youth culture and for sexuality in our city and for our politicians. And I mean, we pray for all sorts of things. But have you ever prayed for boldness? Have you ever stopped and prayed, God, fill me with your spirit so much that this would override my fear that I would speak about Jesus? So that's my challenge, church. Would we pray this dangerous prayer? God, would you give us boldness to continue to speak your word? And I, I may feel out of my depth, and I may not know what to say, and I may feel outnumbered, and I may feel afraid, but God, would you give me boldness by your spirit that despite all of that, I would speak of Jesus. And you know, I think boldness can look different for all of us. For some of you, boldness looks like just a small step of letting people know that you're a Christian. People don't even know that yet. It's a small step of telling people that you went to church on Sunday. But maybe for you, it's a big step. Maybe it's a big step that says to someone, hey, would you like to read the Bible with me? Do you want to come to church? Do you want to come to introducing Jesus? Can I share my story with you? Or maybe it's somewhere in between. But would you pray a dangerous prayer this week? God, would you give me boldness? And it might not be this week. It might be next week, the week after. God is patient with us. Would you pray a prayer of boldness? I'm going to pray now, and, and our prayer team would love to pray for you in this as well. But I want to pray, and, and if you want to be bold this week or this month, if you want to pray that prayer, then as I pray, I'm going to invite you to put your hand up, and I'm going to pray that all of us who would like to receive boldness from God would do that today, that He would fill us with His Spirit, that He would give us boldness to continue to speak the name of Jesus. But we're, we're going to respond in a number of ways now. We're going to respond by remembering the Lord's Supper, by sharing a meal together. For those of you who love Jesus, who follow Him, this meal is a constant reminder that we are in Christ, that His death has paid for our sins, that His blood was shed on our behalf to wash us clean. And I believe there are many here today who need a reminder of that gospel. So as you come, do business with God, dip the bread in the grape juice and eat it, remembering that 
Jesus has rescued you, that he has set you free, that you are a part of his family, that your identity is in him. We're going to respond in, in worship as we praise God now. And our prayer team would love to pray for you. You, you can identify our prayer team by their orange lanyards. They would love to pray for you this morning. If you have any prayer requests you need, please, they're going to be just over here as you head out, out to the foyer, and they would love to pray for you. But I'm going to pray for us now that God would do that very thing, that He would fill us with boldness. So I invite you to stand, church, as we transition to worship and response. And if we can bow every head, close every eye and pray now for those who would like it that God would fill us with boldness so if that's you if you want boldness this morning just raise your hand that's it let me pray God I thank you for every hand raised in this place this morning for every heart that desires to do exactly what we've seen done in Acts chapter 4 this morning. Speak your word. God, we know that so often our hearts are full of fear and we need you this morning. Fill us with boldness. Fill us with boldness, God. By your spirit, empower us to do the very thing that you want us to do. Speak of Jesus. God, we pray for boldness this morning. Pray the same thing for those who wanted to put their hand up but didn't have the courage to do so. For those who are feeling so ashamed of their sin, God, that they felt they were unworthy and not useful, they need boldness too, God. Would you fill them, strengthen them? God, we pray as you send us out of here this week, make us bold. We ask it in Jesus' strong name and those who agreed said, Amen. Let's worship church.